This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here today with a returning guest and interviewer on Little Gold Men, our colleague, Johanna Desta. Hello, Johanna. Hey, Katie. Nice to be back. Uh, so for this interview episode today, you and I talked to people behind two of the biggest movies of 2022 as we kick off 2023. So first, let's hear the conversation you had with Angela Bassett, who um, sort of needs no introduction, but um, really <laughs> <Absolutely>. has, <laughs> she's tremendous in Black Panther Wakanda Forever, even more so than in the first one. Um, this kind of a thing where we she was a key player in this ensemble in Black Panther, but she steps up into an even bigger role and really emotional one in Wakanda Forever. And I'm assuming you guys got into that. Yeah, absolutely. I was so curious to know what it was like for her being the center of a story in a way that she hadn't quite been in the first Black Panther. And she told me so many stories about the set. Um, and it was great. She's She's an icon, to put it mildly. So it was a pleasure to chat with her. Yeah. And like when Wakanda Forever came out, we were kind of like, oh, well, you know, she's really great at it, but we'll see how she lasts in the supporting actress race. But she keeps getting nominated for things. And it's been 30 years since her first Oscar nomination for What's Love Got to Do With It. I think many of us would agree that she is uh, way overdue for another recognition. Um, I'm not sure if you got her to agree to that, but I assume you're right there with me on that. Oh, I'm absolutely right there with you on that. If she's nominated, she would be the first, I think, actor in a Marvel Cinematic Universe film to be nominated for an yeah. acting performance. Uh, and I did ask her a little bit about what it was like to be hearing all the Oscar buzz uh, for this performance, because she really is amazing in it. She just holds center stage and she has so many knockout scenes. So it's only normal that the Oscar conversation would get started for her. Of course. Uh, well, let's hear more of your conversation with Angela Bassett. Obviously, you're here to talk about Black Panther. I have seen the sequel twice now. I will probably see it again with my family over the holidays. I loved it. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. I've only seen it once, and that was at the premiere. So I know I missed something. You know, I got to see it again. So I, I'm going to see it this weekend. Yeah. I'm curious if there was a scene that you were most excited to see come to life, especially now that you can talk about the things that happen in the film. No, I was excited just to see the whole, the whole of it. You know, having started from the beginning, the first scene, the first week was the, you know, the, the UN, the UN scene. So, of course, you're, you know, nervous and excited to see that because that sort of sets you off on the journey. And you hope that you have established 
what it was that you're trying to do, that the character is present, that you get it, that now she's queen and sovereign and she is aware and she must put these various entities, make them aware, put them in their place, you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. So just a lot of things going on in that moment and you hope that it, that everything had been set up and that as an actor, as a performer, that I deliver in that moment because from there, you know, it, the story takes off. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But you kind of touched on something that I wanted to start with, which, you know, I wanted to talk about process as an actor, because obviously Queen Armand is a character you've played before, but her life is radically different in the sequel. You know, she's lost her son. Wakanda is no longer a secret nation. And I'm just curious for you, as you were preparing to play her again, as an actor, what were you thinking that you might have to shift either physically or emotionally in order to play her again? in this new phase of her life? I think in the in the first one, she was, you know, she was more, you know, step back, allow her her kids to actualize, to be king, to be smart. You know, they had that, just a confidence, you know, in the way things had been all along. As you say, it's a nation that, you know, was on the down low. No one knew about them. So there was just, an, I, I think, an ease about living. In this one, within and without, there are lots of factors that uh, amped up the the tension and and the drama. You know, she has to she has to be more mother, you know, than she was before. She has to be more sovereign than she was before. She has to be wiser than she was before. She has to be. Uh, she has to take care of business, you know. Whereas you allow your your son to, you know. So all those things you're considering as you go through the script and and how it's different, how she has to be stronger and wiser and, and gentler, you know, mm. sometimes in gentleness is where the greatest strength emerges from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is such a duality to her in that, like, uh, gentleness is it, like the perfect word for it. Um, and I know... Just speaking of, like you mentioned, the UN scene having to be more sovereign, you know, more powerful. Uh, I know in another interview, you compared this film to more akin to theater acting because there are some really big, powerful scenes. And, you know, your career began in theater. You know the stage. I was curious if there were any elements of performing on the stage that you really drew upon for this film. You know, on the stage, we always talk about you have to hit the back row. And you use all of you, you know, you don't use just your voice, you know, with, with film, you know, the microphone is right here in your shirt, you know, right at your shirt collar, right at the button. And so you can be, you, you attempt to be intimate, you know, you can be more intimate, but the back row wouldn't be able to see that in the theater, see it or feel it. So you have to use the entirety of your body. Because that's the, that's the instrument. So you use the whole of the instrument, the voice, the diaphragm, the, the body, the walk, the stoop, the whatever it might be to get the, you know, get across the, the intention or the objective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the costumes were so helpful. They, they made me feel powerful, whether it's the color red 
or whether it was the sleeves that were so regal and what they did when I turned around, when you would whirl or turn to look to, you know, pronounce to the entire room. You know, sometimes you feel constricted, you know, in certain moments on television or screen. It's just too big. Mm-hmm. But it was, you had the whole of the room um, to work with and to use your voice and your command and your power. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the costumes. Ruth Carter did a phenomenal job, as she always does. But there was something that she said at another screening of the film. She said, when Angela comes to a fitting, she's prepared. And there was a lot of work, like weight on the word prepared. And she said that sometimes you slip into character. Once you put the costumes on, you become the queen. Is that an intentional thing or does something just kind of take over once you're in no, costume? Because, you know, I'm getting up every day. I'm putting on my... I'm putting on my sweats and my workout talk, <laughs> and I'm doing that. You don't really look too too queenly. You know? <laughs> yeah, my sweatsuit, my hoodies, or whatever, and 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 that's it. And then it's the end of the day, and then it's PJs or, or whatever. But I know that when I came into her domain, um, I'm excited about how she sees me, and I know mm-hmm. she's brilliant, and I know she's a genius, and you know, and history. <laughs> can can tell you so because we we got the first one so I know she's going to take it up another notch and as as soon as I put on the costume and she has a huge mirror there mm-hmm. and able to look at yourself and you're able to you know check your posture your you know how do you hold your your head your hands your feet you know you're able to I guess, consciously critique yourself a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then I ask, do I believe it? Yeah, I do. I believe that mm-hmm. I, and then you can forget that. And when you're on the set, you can forget all about that and just go to work. I love that. Yeah. I'm curious if you came to her with like questions, ideas, suggestions, just because of the way that she talked about you coming prepared for these fittings. Mm. I mean, she is totally and utterly prepared. There was one moment <laughs> that I thought, and, and, you know, since I've done maybe, I've done five movies with Ruth, you know, we have this history, which is youth, mm-hmm. you know, and sisterhood. Um, and uh, so, you know, you feel very, we feel very comfortable with, with each other. I mean, we go back to what's lo- Malcolm X and what's love, and, you know. And all this, you know, these various projects. And, um, you know, once I see where she's going, then it's like, okay, I get it. And she'll have all of the, the rings and the adornments out. So I, I just start to play with them to see what feels most aligned, mm-hmm. you know? And so, and she allows that. And there was one scene which was which was a little challenging because we had to go back. It, it wasn't the over-the-top grandeur of the outfit. It was the, it was the outfit, the costume. When Shuri and Ramonda go into the bush. Mm-hmm. And so she just felt that that would, that would be something totally different. We're talking about you go back, to, you know, lean on tradition and you go back to the bush and you sit by the water and you sit with yourself and, you know, and, um, and you, you don't run away and, and, and you ground yourself um, in, in who you are. 
a simpler you, you know. And uh, we had that textile of this this undergarment that the colors of the earth, you know, of brown and ochre, you know, tan. And she put it on me, and it was like kind of odd fitting, you know, because it had like cap sleeves. It was a little odd. It was like a pantsuit, but it was a little big. And then she said, okay, I'm going in my warehouse, which is a massive, massive warehouse of all these costumes. Mm-hmm. She said, I'm going to go, go in there and look and see if I have, have something, you know, something else. This is, this is not quite right. So she, she left out. She left me in the room with, you know, all the lovely garments, and little, you know, extra, you know, like, I think it's like a little duster or whatever hanging up there. With those colors that we're familiar with, that kinty, you know, all those those kind of mud clothy mm-hmm. colors that we're familiar with. I mean, and so while she was gone, I get a chance to play, <laughs> mess up still. So I put that on top. I said, you know, because now I think I know how to mix, really mix textiles and mix. <laughs> you're like, I'm just gonna put something together. I'm just gonna. I know what I'm doing. Oh, and look at these neck, these neck pieces. I'm going to put that on. Mm-hmm. And she came back in. I was like, I've got to be dressed. <laughs> just hi. And she oh was like, oh, it works. I was like, when you win another Oscar, you must thank me. You must let me borrow it for one day. <laughs> for this little oh, part I did. <laughs> Wait, I love that, though. Like, she, she loved what you, I mean, you know your character. You knew the look. I love that. And it tickled me so much. I mean, I had such, it was such a point of pride for me that I could put together something that this genius said, check, that works. I was like, no, you're kidding me. Please don't play with me. Like, don't play with my feelings. I love um, that. Yeah, yeah. She, she, we're all going to be watching out for your mention in her speech. <laughs> The Run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitch. Um, who should be the mayor of New York? We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asha, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I wanted to talk about also Letitia Wright, who was like your main on-screen partner. Mm. She plays Shuri. She's so fantastic in this. And you both do a great job of playing these characters who are rising to this enormous challenge while also grieving, while also in real life, you know, continuing the legacy of Chadwick Boseman, um, continuing what he created. Um, talk to me a bit about working with Letitia and supporting each other through this process. She's just so lovely. And to have the opportunity to return and to continue to build, you know, to build on screen and off screen 
active relationship that had started on Path One was a real joy. Um, and I, I think and necessary. And, um, and a, a part of me, I, I mean, I love to support young artists and young women. And I, every day watching her work, so proud because she, she's so engaged and she's so dedicated. She has her, her little script, her, her little script. This thick, it's the entire script, but somehow she's gotten it condensed to, I don't know, maybe, maybe it's about eight inches, four inches. And like every- a little novella or something yes. of the script? Wow. Yes. And I was like, oh, that's brilliant. How'd you get that done? And she's keeping up with her, her notes and she's meticulous about her, her note taking and her observations and her conversations with Ryan and, and just peeling about peeling back the layers of of shuri um so i just joy to watch it you know the student in her and uh and then she comes to the set and she's studious she does her thing and in betwixt and between she has she has fun and laughs and sings and and jokes and and makes me joke (laughs) and makes me light as well so, um, yeah, it was good to be together because it was, it was difficult for baby, you know, for the my baby, mm-hmm. you know, I think you, you get to a mature age, you hear more and more, you know, you, you expect, you sense, you witness, you experience loss, but when you're young, you know, you're young forever, um, so it was a it was a real blow for her, as it was for all of us. Mm-hmm. When you don't know, but you don't know. But uh, so I was really, really, very, very, extremely proud of um, of how she comported herself and how she dealt with it and how she persevered and how she triumphed. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, it's such a triumph for performance, as are like all the performances and the film itself. I mean, they say like every film is a miracle, but this is really, really extraordinary what you guys were able to pull off, knowing what you were going through as well. So, yeah, all the applause, all the applause. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I wanted to dive into some of the scenes as well. We talked briefly about the UN scene and the theatricality of some of the bigger scenes. You know, one standout is where Queen Ramonda is talking about how she's lost everything, and it fills the room. Um, and it's such a great scene between you and Denai Guerrero as well. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about preparing for that scene, figuring out the level of emotionality that you wanted to bring to that moment. You know, I think the preparation for that scene began, well, let's say I received the script from Ryan. You read the script and you see it. And then there was work that began with various individuals, one being Beth, who was our dialect coach. So you're reading the script, you're reading the pages, you're seeing where you're going. And even in the reading of it, like emotion just sort of, you know, bubbles up from your, from your, you know, from your Mm -hmm. stomach, just, just rises and you can you know, knowing the great loss, losing your son, losing your daughter, the excuses or whatever. And she has to do what she has to do. She has to set her sit her down. But 
you felt that it just jumped off the page. So now you begin the the work of of you don't want the emotion to take over and then to completely lose, you know, the the technique with the dialect. So it's like emotion, passion and technique and they have to work together, you know? They have to play nicely together. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. And once you have the technique, then you can sort of forget about it and then just go with passion because you're already undergirded and supported by the technique, whether it's the dialect, you know, or physical, whatever physicality, you know. Mm-hmm. So on that day, you can be free, you know, you have an opportunity to be free and you can play. And that's all you really want to do play with those who are with you in the scene with you try this way and that way and whatever you know just play because you know mm-hmm. about extreme you know other things right yeah and you have that foundation yeah. i mean you mentioned uh the script reading the script um i mean i have to ask about a spoiler alert scene you know the devastating realization that queen ramonda dies trying to protect Riri Williams. I know that you said you didn't agree originally with Ryan about that choice. Uh, Talk to me about realizing, like reading the script, realizing that's going to happen and how you eventually arrived at feeling like, okay, yes, this is the right choice. Oh, I remember reading it and I mean, I've come to love Ramonda. You know, a dream come true to portray a queen and of this glorious land, Wakanda, to have the opportunity. And audiences come to love her much. She represents your mother. I mean, this representation is phenomenal. Um, and so to, you know, like we're, we, we're going we're gonna to return to, the, to, this, to this land, you know, to this glory. Okay. Oh, no. <laughs> Oh, no. So it was really disappointing and devastating and, you know, just mind-blowing when I read that, you know, that, uh, that, that she dies. But, um, you know, as an, as an actor, as an artist, as a colleague, as a contributor, as someone who's in service to the story, that's what you have to come to recognize and have to deal with, that you're in service to the story and to the vision of the director, ultimately, whether you like it or not. I think I've died maybe once before. Didn't like it then either. No. <laughs> you think you're indispensable. No. Right. That's a good, that's a good margin, though. Only <laughs> once, <laughs> like a handful of times. That's amazing. But um, how fulfilling that when it's ha- the, the, the outpour from the audience, you know, or the gas from the audience when that happened, how fulfilling it's just, it's just further cements, you know, in my mind that it was a character, a beloved character, that it was just visceral, the reaction to her, to her death. I was sitting in the theater. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah. Yes. I couldn't believe it was happening, but I was like, of course, of course, but it's really powerful. Last question. Um, you know, this is an award season podcast. Mm-hmm. There's already been articles and prognosticating that you should get an Oscar nomination because your performance is so powerful. I was just curious how it feels to know that your performance is causing so much conversation in the awards space. I, I, I'm loving it because it's, it's, 
it's been 30 years since um, I've been in that space before. And being in that space is just indicative of, of work that you've put in that it's recognized to this degree because there are only, there are only spots for five. Not as if there aren't, you know, more than five that are deserving, but it's a very, you know, it's a very small number. So I'm very excited to hear that kind of talk. It's just been a, been a long time. You know, a lot of people do a lot of good work along the way every year, year to year to year. But uh, I guess it's, it's special when it can land in that, in that group thing. So now let's pivot to a different blockbuster and hear the conversation that I had with James Cameron and his cinematographer, Russell Carpenter. Uh, They reunited uh, from having worked together on True Lies and a little movie called Titanic uh, for Avatar The Way of Water. And this conversation got really technical really fast. And Johanna, I don't know if you've ever interviewed a director who just like really loves to get into the details and you have to be like, "Mm -hmm, I absolutely know what all of those (laughs) machines are. Have you been in the situation? (laughs) I absolutely have been in that situation. Sometimes I'm like, well, maybe that's not for me to ask more about. But sometimes I (laughs) love asking nerdy questions like that. Like I interviewed um, Alejandro Inari too about Pardo. They got, and Darius Conji, the cinematographer, and they got really into the weeds on all the camera techniques and stuff that they did. But I loved it. They were so passionate about it. That's the thing is, you know, directors do a lot of interviews talking about the story. But when you get them with their cinematographers, which we do in the shot list series, which this interview will be part of as well. They just really dig in deep and they tell stories and they remember being on set together. It like unlocks a whole different part of their brain. Um, so mm-hmm. I think it is worth keeping up with the lingo. And I kind of did my best to, to keep up myself and hopefully help the listeners keep up and just get insight into, I mean, how they make Avatar the way of water. Like these Avatar movies are complicated and digital, but also physical. I mean, there's a part in the interview where I just say, okay, so are there real lights or are they all in the computer? <laughs> and the answer is, both, of course. Um, <laughs> and I thought it was really interesting that I'm talking about Spider, the human character played by Jack Champion, who's kind of hanging out with all these Navi kids. And he is much more in the movie than the humans are throughout most of the first Avatar. You know, in the first one, you get the humans together and the Navi together. And Spider is with the Navi all the time. And shooting him was just insanely complicated, as you might imagine. Um, but you can kind of tell they relished the challenge, too. Katie, have you interviewed James Cameron a bunch, or was this kind of like a first big landmark interview with him? This was a first big landmark interview, and I'd like try to be cool about it. <laughs> At the beginning, I was like, is it okay to call you Jim? Because that's what people call you, but I like, don't want to be too familiar. Um, what did he no. say? Yeah, it's a, the Loving James Cameron movies has been a major part of my life as a film fan, so that was obviously very exciting. And he was really lovely to talk to. And I, I think, again, because he had Russell Carpenter, who he knows so well, on the line there together to, to really dive deep. So... It was a thrill for me, Uh, and you can hear all about it in this conversation with James Cameron and Russell Carpenter. So the work on an Avatar movie, obviously, production means something different than it does on an average movie because the process is long, there's technology. But for the two of you, when does your work together really start on this movie, and, and what does the start of your work together look like? The first work together were some tests that we shot together, and then... uh, Casting. Mm. Yeah, for casting. Yeah, ostensibly for casting, but we were really testing our new, our spanking new Cine Alta camera system too. Yeah, and, and that, I'm very happy about that. That that went well. And then, and uh, I got the call to was join the production. And way back in 2018, 
They started a year before uh, cameras actually rolled on live action. So then what, so when's happening in 2018 then before live action starts? What's that work? I, I was doing lighting on virtual scenes. And and for me, that that was a, a new experience. But after a couple of days, I felt like I, I, I could ride the bike. I, I had lots of people, uh, lots of lovely lighting designers uh, to supervise. And uh, we we started right in. Uh, Jim said, okay, here's your scene. Go light this. And and Jim Jim's working the cameras. He He's... Uh, the virtual camera uh, down in the studio, he was doing that. And then uh, we w- would uh, work upstairs and then I'd come and show him uh, what I did, basically. And so we just had this back and forth. And it, and it starts also, every scene that I do on the movie starts with a conversation with Jim. If it's about uh, an eclipse scene, it's uh, Jim would tell me basically, you know, the cosmology of what, like the planet... Uh, Polyphemus uh, was composed of and what he would expect based on the gases that surround the planet. (laughs) But he based on the gases and he he knew the gases, (laughs) what he would the color shift that he would expect to see. So I just have all this information in my pocket now to go go ahead and uh, make these things happen. Uh, I mean, it it was like that uh, uh, for so many things. I mean, everything really started with a conversation and then you take it from there, and uh, and uh, Russ and I have a shorthand from mm-hmm. Titanic, what well, goes back to True Lies, but Titanic, and you know we're going after an aesthetic. You know what's our color palette? What are we trying to say to the audience subliminally? You know, is it bright? Is it cool? Is it dark? Is it moody? Is it glorious? Is it luminous? You know, and and there was some color palette stuff that was worked out on the first movie. Uh, which Russ didn't work on. So part of it, I think, Russ, for you, part of it was just a learning curve of seeing what had worked the first time and then where to take it and move forward from from there. Yeah, I, I, I inherited a, a color palette for, well, for, say, for the jungles in Pandora. And, and Jim was, was very specific. He said, this is a movie that's going to have a wide bandwidth of colors. And so hmm. he talked extensively about the color palettes that you would find in the jungle and how it, you might have a slightly warm top light. Then the canopy is very cool in between, but also spotting spotting the, the, the landscape of the jungle with the light that comes off uh, the plants when sunlight hits it. And it was a be- really a beautiful way of uh actually lighting the navi characters because their 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 blue skin took the screen in a in a very very beautiful way mm-hmm. and spider spider was a bit of a challenge because he had a much warmer kind of you know pink orange brown kind of kind of skin color and he had to blend in and be part of the scene with the others and Russ did a lot you sent me that picture a couple of days ago yeah of, of one of those early camera tests with that very strong cyan blue green LUT right on it which was uh i mean we just applied that throughout all the way through yeah it, it was uh you know but every every place had its uh had a color scheme i mean and and notes always notes i i lit the uh the the high camp scene where the novice return after a raid and that's a very wonderful uh i mean we talked about where the light was coming from 
what the fires would look like inside the tent and this very beautiful scene. But also because this is an environment that is part Navi, but is also somewhat influenced by the technology of uh, what was it, the biolabs or yeah, or- biolab, the human, the human guys, the the avatar project avatar people that were there. So you created a mix of light. You had a lot of blue edge light, as I recall. I think we, I yeah. think we used the no, metaphor of a and safe. It, it was lovely because we, uh, you know, there's this beautiful actually conversation between Antintiri and Sully about, uh, and they're just outside the tents. So you've got this beautiful blue light that's influenced by some of the lights that the, uh, our, let's say, our good humans brought to that area. But then also that plays off the warmth of the fire. So. Jim's always working out way to get a lot of a lot of color spectrum into his scenes. Yeah, that high camp scene in particular felt like it could be in like an old western or something, like having the campfire mm-hmm. at the end of the day. And I don't know how often you like look at previous films because so much of this is brand new. But was that maybe a scene where you said well, we're capturing the same kind of light you see in you know West of the Mohicans or something like that? Was are, are there any references like that for you guys? Sure. But also for me, Jim, Jim, he, he he wanted me also to look at art. He even I, I we talked about this a little bit. He said, he said, go just go look at what Maxfield Parrish does with the light at the end of the day. And I don't know if you've seen his work, but it's just it's so beautiful. All these blue and pink or blue and gold hues in it. So his references to art like that really gave me a a way to go. You know, yeah. I, I look at that. I'd have my visual, I'd have my visual palette in mind now. Well, I wanted to ask about Spider too, because to my mind, there's a lot more interaction between Navi and human in this one, and particularly in in environments like in the jungle. And Spider's a major character, but you know, all throughout. So, what was the challenge this time of like making those fit together, like in terms of cinematography, or is it much easier than I'm imagining because of the way the motion capture works? It's hideously, hideously difficult. Wouldn't you say, <laughs> Russ? I, I, no, I would. I would say. <laughs> Painstakingly difficult okay. because he was in so many scenes in so many different environments. You really have to, you know, nail down exactly when and where and how the light is, and maybe where where shafts of sunlight are hitting. If any of those cues are off, the audience goes, "Wait, something's out of whack." Mm-hmm. And so we worked really, really hard. The beauty was we got to do it twice. Everything that we did with Jack photographically. We did previously with him in terms of capture. So mm-hmm. Jack did his entire performance twice. Once for all the other actors like Sigourney and Britton and, and Sam, so that he was there kind of off camera. And then we had these capture scenes and then Russ would light the capture scene. And we'd say, okay, you know, there's a bit of purple light coming from the tank over there, the, the amnio tank, and there's a kind of a cyan, slightly cyan kind of fluorescent light. And then there's, screen lights or whatever we and Russ would just fool around with that I think when you first lit the biolab for me I thought boom that's it that's the whole color palette for that oh, I, I had a lovely uh palette to, I mean I had a lovely reference which is uh you know of course I I really studiously looked at the first film and I knew that there would be sets that we would come back that you'd want the audience to be totally familiar with it's like a mm-hmm. home from the first picture right and uh you know, we worked we worked hard to, you know, make sure that the blue that was coming from the amnio tank was just as it was done in the previous picture. So right, yeah, right. I've been here. I understand what this is. 
So then we'd take that, we'd take that capture. I would do kind of rough cameras on it, and then I'd cut the scene together, and then we'd go into live action, and we'd say, okay, shot number four. We actually took my handheld move with the virtual camera, and we programmed the techno dolly with that move. Uh, or sometimes the camera operators uh, on, on set would just match the move with a dolly or something like that. And so we'd start, we'd kind of start with a game plan and a lighting plan. So then Russ would come in and work with his uh, gaffer, Len, and they, they create a very complicated grid um, that allowed a lot of flexibility. And they could very quickly reproduce the lighting because we were working in a, in a suite of lighting tools called Gazebo that we developed. After the first Avatar, we realized the, light, the CG lighting was horrible hmm. for us in our, in our proxy environment, which, which, uh, which we call MOBU, you know, Motion Builder. And so we built this whole suite of tools called Gazebo. And then Russ worked in Gazebo. And then when we did our simulcam, where you know, we got a, I've got, now got a live-action cap uh, camera and actors and some set pieces, and it's all extended by simulcam. So what I'm looking at is kind of the finished shot, a proxy of the finished shot, where, where everything's there. Maybe it, it could be a giant landscape. It could be the jungle. It could be a lab space or, or whatever the scene is. I'm actually seeing it, and I'm seeing all the CG characters in it. And Weta had worked with our technical team to build this thing called Real-Time Depth, and that allowed CG characters and, and live-action characters to move around each other mm. without requiring alphas. It was done entirely volumetrically. It was quite remarkable. Wait, so what's alphas? Well, an alpha is like a holdout mat. So okay. typically that would be done in the, in the past with a blue screen. Okay, we okay. using a blue screen or a green screen. It was done volumetrically. So wherever that CG character was, that's where he was spatially, mm -hmm. right? So he could actually pass in front of an actor. It would render out that way in real time. And then I could operate the camera to that. So the beauty of that is Russ had the lighting from the, that he'd done previously. And then he had to sort of match it or we could change it. In other words, Russ, you could change the lighting however we wanted. We could change the lighting. And then we'd back the lighting changes into the, the live action version of gazebo so we were kind of working in two worlds simultaneously it was kind of a bit of a mind you know uh, yeah it, it's, a, it's a rather <laughs> a rather permeable wall between the live action uh, and what's done virtually and of course i had the, these wonderful references that the, the all the information that i did in the virtual world i could access two and a half years later mm -hmm. you know by, by by talking with my lovely friends and the uh, over on the computer side, who were quite helpful. Well, we had, we'd have a big we it would look like Mission Control in the backfield, <laughs> you know, behind us. It's like we just pull the curtain across so we don't have to see all the people <laughs> back there. You know? and, it, and it really was, I have to say, my duties in lighting were what they'd be on a live action picture. The experience of making the film uh, when we were shooting live action was so alien to how I worked in the in the past. I mean mm -hmm. there, there there there's a there there's a lot of incantations and setups yeah. that have to go on. A lot of voodoo. Jim the live camera with what Jim did years ago with his virtual camera. But however once that's done, once that fusion has been made, there's a lot of freedom because Jim could hand hold the camera, mm -hmm. which he often did. He wanted to be right yeah. Right with the actors, and uh, 
you know, he he could totally you're not you're not locked into some absolute. I mean, there there's a lot of room for making a change. And and Jim will often make changes in framing just based on what's going on in front of his in it. The thing is that, you know, Russ and I have worked together so much. We're, we're kind of like an old married couple and there's a great dialogue and, and, you know, he might get excited about an idea and pitch it to me, or I might get excited about an idea and pitch it to him. And there's a lot of flexibility, but however I'm moving that camera around, whether it's with the crane or Ollie or hand holding, the world is just changing accordingly. Mm-hmm. I can walk through that virtual world. I can walk through the physical world. With the with the set pieces, we didn't. We never built everything. We just built what we needed, um, and so you know we had kind of infinite ability to to reimagine the scene if we got interested in something in the moment. And Russ is very Russ is very intuitive about his approach to lighting and and color and feeling. You know, I would I would say Russ's greatest gift as a cinematographer is that it it's a feeling. It's an aesthetic feeling you know, that he brings to it. And I get kind of up in my head technically, and he kind of always grounds me with, you know, what are we trying to say here? What's our, what's our mood? Um, I want to make sure I've got just the logistics right. So physically in the space where you have the actors, you're moving the camera around. Have you set up lights there that are part of the cinematography or are they just lights to work and all of the lighting that we actually see in the movie is what's been done digitally? No. Uh, well, so there's that which we are photographing live. Mm-hmm which sometimes can be the most of the frame or it can even be only a small part of the, of the foreground. But whatever you're doing to light that live set and the actors now becomes your lighting and has to be propagated back into the CG, CG portion of it, you know, when it, all, when it all goes to Weta. So we do a kind of a proxy lighting pass to get us in the ballpark. And then Russ lights it, and then that lighting becomes definitive. And then that dictates all the downstream version of the of the lighting we have a little bit of wiggle room but not that much you know so the key fill ratios on spider become critical or any of the any of the characters because that we can't change once it baked in at that at that moment i was really surprised is that that i thought oh you're going to be totally locked in and yet there's room to move and there's room to move in post too to seal the deal in terms of how seamless this photography is or how well embedded does Spider look in this virtual world? And I, I thought it was successful. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. I feel like we have to talk about sunlight because it's part of the script. You've got Eclipse kind of added as this factor in the story. And then it's such a huge element when you get out to to the reef cultures. And there is sunlight in the original Avatar, but it's just so much more prominent in this. So why why was adding the sun part of the story? And is it because technology advanced in a way to make the sun work better this time around than in the first one? What did you use for your main sun elements, Russ? I can't well, remember. Well, it, it really depended. Uh 
we ran out of space on that huge set where the sea dragon was. So we worked with one very strong element, like it's called an airy max, basically. But then we had other elements that seemed to, you have to make it all look like one sun. But then we had other lights kind of clustered around that and they would make strategic strikes. So in that sense, when you're on the studio and we were on the studio, well, we were on the studio every day. We never went outside. Uh, but it, it was just part of the logistics. We're just finding the the space to get your light back far enough to make a, make a very convincing sun. Now, the Sea Dragon, is that the ship? Or are we talking about one of the creatures? Yeah, that's the ship that okay, opens okay. like a big, big clamshell. I was, I was like, this is the biggest thing in the movie. So yeah, <laughs> it makes right. sense. So the sun was important because, you know, what there are many flavors of sun. And Russ and I had big discussions about, you know, how late in the day are we? You know, what's our key fill ratio and what's our color dynamic in the, from the, the key side to the fill side? You know, so if you're midday, there's not much of a color dynamic. You get a little bit of blue in the sky. But if you're late day, it really pulls apart by thousands of degrees uh, Kelvin, you know. And so we'd have long discussions about that. And we could actually preview it in gazebo. We could make we could see if, how warm we wanted the, the sun key in like right in the in the, the live composite in the in the shot and then we could Russ could propose something and then they could match it in gazebo or or vice versa because we use simulcam for just about everything because mm-hmm. uh, you know we wanted to compose to what the final shot would kind of kind of look like I don't think there are any shots that aren't in the in the final cut of the movie there are no shots that aren't VFX shots. I mean, when you got you've got the sun going down over the course of the last hour. You've got the large scale, you know, sequence with the Tolkien that's kind of in like very broad, straight up daylight. But then the sun is starting to go down over the course of it, and yes. obviously you're storyboarding something to this extent. But right. like, how how do you work with the amount of elements that you have in keeping track of the sun, and and why why build the sun into the story into the final hour in that way? I think Russ didn't we didn't we pretty much figure out our sun angles in virtual first yeah at the whale hunt we we definitely talked about where that sun was where it was coming from and and what that would look like and then and then there was a lot of discussions that because of the eclipse things get a lot more dramatic mm-hmm. on the sea dragon and as the sea dragon is attacked by the navi and the metcaina mostly the navi but uh and a very angry mom having it dark at that time made for a much more dramatic theater of operations in terms of fire and lighting and, and of course, explosions and all that. Yeah, we pulled out every trick we could for color, even having some of the lights on the ship submerge below the water and then come up through it in this kind of cyan. So we're mixing cyan, firelight, uh, yellow rotator emergency beacons flashing across faces, and all that had to be integrated across, uh, again, the set extensions and, and all that. Uh, so we always had to figure out where everything was really supposed to be. And we, we just always made the assumption that the eye had enough time 
to kind of follow where things were supposed to be. But we took a lot of liberties. Well, that's interesting because when you have a world that's so full and so the technology is so novel, like knowing that what the audience has time to follow and what we need more time for, how do you figure that out? Because it works. High frame rate helps with that also. But mm-hmm. where, where do you kind of judge what the audience can keep up with and what maybe needs another second or another few frames for us to understand? That's the trickiest part, you know, because part of the fun of an Avatar movie is that it does slow down and let you smell the roses and be in the space and feel present. But you also have to maintain a narrative momentum. So different scenes had different cutting rhythms. I think the the Tulkun hunt was cut pretty quickly. Uh, but even within that, you know, kind of motif, instead of, you know, when when other movies are cut quickly, they're, they're on about a one second cutting rhythm in an action sequence. We'd be more like two seconds. Hmm. Give you a little more time to take it in, just a little bit more, but still maintain core momentum. But, uh, but in general, I think on, on Titanic, we found that we were cutting out about one third the rate of a typical big movie. Wow. And on, on Avatar, we were cutting at about 1.75. So uh, the rate, so not quite half the, half the speed. Wow. I mean, we actually did a study of this, you know, cadence, you know, rhythm. Uh, uh, you know, from an editing standpoint, but but in general, we wanted to hang on shots longer and develop shots that played. I always said that to really service 3d. Well, you try to make one shot, do the job or uh, one shot, do the job of two in a normal movie. Hmm. Uh, So that you get to hang a little longer in one perspective or one bit of space. The shot that kind of sums up the movie in some ways to me, and speaking of lingering, is where you've got Noak kind of touching the Tolkien, like the from below, you've got the sun shining above them. It's so specific. It's been in a lot of the advertising. Can you guys just talk about that shot specifically, how that's made, how that comes together, and how you decided on that look for it? Oh, we captured that in the tank with with Loak holding his hand out and and touching. I think he was just touching uh, the hand of the guy that played Viacon. You know, or it might have been a a piece of pipe. I don't remember, but he was touching something and just floating. And he had to stabilize his his buoyancy and look up to where uh, he imagined the eye to be. I mean, Paikon was an unusual character because he was so big, he couldn't be played by by a puppeteer. So and then we we went into, uh, you know, the the lighting format in in virtual. This was after young Britton Dalton, who played Loak, has already gone home and the tank's been torn down. And then we figure out. What looks good, you know, and you move the sun around. The beauty of it is you can just drag the sun all over the place till you <laughs> see what looks good. And we could do that on the live action set as well. Let's move the sun a little bit more. Let's move it some more. Oh, that was great. Okay, good. All right. Now let's match. Let's match that. So, yeah. So we did find an interesting wrinkle, though. You put the sun where you want it in the gazebo tool set. And then Weta takes it. And then Weta will actually do proper ray trace refraction through a real water surface. And guess what? The sun's not there anymore. The sun's yeah. now out of frame. Oh, right? Wow. It's like, yeah. hey, because, you know, we're faking it a little bit in gazebo. We don't do proper refractive ray tracing. So, I'm, so you know, my answer to them was simple. No, the sun goes there. You guys <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> uh, the, the fun thing for me, I, I, I walked over to the gym had this huge tank built inside a very large studio and it and the the tank made it possible to do so many different scenarios it was like a swiss army knife you could have 
You could have a shore, uh, shallow shore. You could have a, a very deep environment. But I walked over one day and something was happening. And I was going, what, what do you... This woman was swimming around almost in circles and the cameras were below looking up at her. And I said, what's that supposed to be? And he, and I think it was Garrett Warren said, oh, she's a whale today. Yeah, we wanted the gesture. Yeah. We wanted the gesture. So we put the, you know, having a human performer... We got them to swim like Tulkun. We gave them mon monofins and so on. And then, you know, if they wanted to interact, they could hold out a hand and they could touch fins or they could shelter a calf or they could swim in tandem or they could hang vertically in the water. We wanted to get the social vocabulary of the Tulkun. And so we just asked our water performers to do it. But Rush, remember that the hoops we had to jump through in that tank to to light spider with the bioluminescence for movie three and for, you know, all the different setups, you had to pull tools out of, you know, I, I mean, things that I had never seen before. Yeah. Luckily in, in the years between avatar one and, and the way of water lighting tools have changed a lot. And it's now quite possible for us to, to do have remotely controlled lights under the water and we could simulate kind of any, I mean, basically there are tubes, but we could simulate so many kinds of bioluminescence or somebody's walking through shallow water and and say, Jim, if you watch The Abyss or, you know, any of the water movies, he loves the life that light from coming up from below gives to the scene. And uh, so then if we've got all this plant life underneath, there's another excuse to to use that motif. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the, the, the problem with lighting for spider though, is that he's wearing a mask and, and we, we jumped through a few hoops because anytime you put up any kind of light, you see it in the mask. And uh, I think Dan Cox and Jim worked on basically changing how that mask bent and how it was shaped just to help us. We put a bit of a curve on it. What we found out, which is count, very counterintuitive, if you're illuminating what's supposed to be bioluminescence, you typically would want to spread that light and make it as soft and broad as possible. You might even bounce into a submerged Griffon or something like that, or or you'd use big big panels or tubes. And what we found was then then your reflection just covered his whole face. So we actually found out the best thing to do was to use one light to do it. And then you get a point source reflecting, and you could paint that out. So the reflection in the mask wouldn't be broad. It would be very tiny. And sometimes just by getting Jack to turn his head, we could get him to put it right on the corner of the lens, meaning the, the lens of the mask. And then we could paint it out later. Um, but that's kind of counterintuitive, and that took a lot of, a lot of testing. Uh, now, the, our workaround when, when people were above water was we just shot with no glass in the mask. Oh, yeah. Because it was way too time-consuming. I mean, you could see what my glasses are doing just here, you it's know. It's like the oldest trick in the book, right? Isn't that what all TV shows do? Just everyone's glasses are, are it's empty? It's the oldest trick in the book, but it, <laughs> but it gets a bit daunting when you've got a thousand mask shots that have to run through CG later, you That's know. True. But it did give us a lot of flexibility. And Russ also worked out with his team a way to run fiber optic up into the mask to create a little bit of illumination on Jack's face that corresponded to this kind of HUD display, like the mask had a head-up display inside it. And that was even true underwater. We had to figure out how to do that underwater. All coming back now, right, Russ? 
Yeah. No, it was like, so Jim you know, throws out the, the challenge. Okay, this is what I want. This is what it's got to look like. And this is what it's got to do. And you're thinking, how hard can that be? And I think four months later, we were still working on how to yeah. get this point source and the mat, uh, and the mass as tiny as we can get it and do the things that Jim wanted it to do. So it's well, always like flash, like when it turned amber and turned into an alarm and then turned red. And there's th things that we developed that had story requirements across movie two and movie three. So we haven't seen some of that. Stuff. You know, we tried to do a one size fits all development pathway. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to run out of time, but I, maybe a last question for you guys. I think of you in the water tanks. I think about Titanic, of course, and there's a lot of shots in this that, you know, bring Titanic to mind. And you're doing something that's totally different from it. I am assuming you've got more freedom than when you're in a physical tank with physical people and physical lights. So what was that comparison like for you two? Did you think about Titanic at all as you went back into the tanks together? I don't think we thought about Titanic that much, but we did have two completely discrete sets of problems. One was the doing in the capture tank. But the other one was the tanks in, in New Zealand for live action. Um, and I think the biggest challenge Russ had, which, Russ, you can explain how you did it. When we're shooting spider at the surface of the water and there's fire all around, we need to get that fire reflecting in the water. So in the old days, you would have done it with big propane burners and stuff like that. But Russ used big LED screens. So it got us closer to that kind of virtual production that people are talking about now where they, they use massive LED arrays. LED screens, if you shoot them in it with a stereo movie or a 3D movie, what you get is what looks just like a billboard. It's, 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 it's two-dimensional. But we found that we could use these LEDs in really much more efficient ways, especially when we were shooting in the water. And there's supposed to be these huge oil fires around. That would be a hard thing for visual effects to do, to make all those reflections in the water. I mean, it's moving constantly. So we just said, Let's just blanket this area with these LED screens that have basically the fire that you're supposed to be seeing and hang them either just above the water or figure out a way using mirrors to have the fire appear to come right out of the water. Uh, and that that actually helped wet out quite a bit. And it was, uh, right. you know. Yeah, we'd have, big bank, we'd have big banks of plexiglass mirrors and we'd be reflecting screens so that it looked like the fire was right at water level. And then we just put the camera kind of right at water level because the mirrors would come right down to the, to the water. Yeah, we, we couldn't get those LED screens uh, too low or it would be a very expensive shooting day. And very, and very <laughs> yeah, short out, right? <laughs> yeah, everything would just short out. So, yes, this mirror, this, this mirror gag, the... The big LED panels were lying flat, shooting down into a 45-degree plexiglass mirror. And, of course, the bottom of the mirror could be right in the water and no harm, no foul. And and that's how we did that. And now that's for shots with spider, or is that for all of them and what is adapting it to for all of the shots that involve the fire in the water? Any human care, we really pretty much mostly just had spider in the water. There were a couple scenes we shot that got cut out of the movie that had other characters in the water. But uh, it was pretty much Spider, because if it was a CG character like Kiri in the water or Jake, then they just they just rendered uh, CG water. Mm -hmm. But the tricky part was when you had Spider and two two CG characters in the same shot. Then they had to figure out how to do a complicated split screen and extend out the, not only the water but the color and intensity of the reflections that Russ had created. So 
went ahead to take and build on what we had built into the to the plate. But our philosophy was the more we do real, the better, and then let them sort out downstream where they want to replace something or blend into it. I love that split screen is still around. Talk about oldest trick in the book. Like that yeah. is such a classic format, but it's still part of it. Yeah, but it wasn't like just that split screen. <laughs> it was like finding finding a wave and rotoing the edge of that wave and then matching the CG water to it beyond that. It's a pretty complicated split screen. So, you know, it took a month to do it. But, you know, we, you just know when you're doing this kind of movie that everything's going to take time and it's going to take testing, R&D and you know, the creativity of a, a whole bunch of people. That does it for today's interview episode. Happy New Year, everybody. We'll be back on Thursday with our regular roundtable conversation. In the meantime, find us on Twitter at HWD and on our own. I am at Katie Rich and Johanna. I'm at Johanna Desta. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>